So last week we dove headlong into the Reformed doctrine of predestination and election. And I spent a fair amount of time this last week hoping that I didn't come across as if wrapping our minds around this concept was easy. I had problems with it when I first heard it. But, you know, truthfully, though, I really think the illustrations can help because you're really not going to accept that idea until you get out of the normal modes for the way in which you think about God. It's fundamental to the question. For instance, when I was younger, I had a conversation with someone who I've now long since forgotten about this very topic of God's election. And I remember him using an illustration. I've never forgotten it. Uh, because he asked me at the beginning of the conversation what my favorite novel was. Well, weirdly, I responded by the one book that had most captured my imagination when I took high school English, a book called A Separate Piece by John Knowles. Uh, if you're familiar, unfamiliar with it, uh, the book tells the story about a very difficult relationship between two boys, Gene and Finney, who were at a prep school during World War II. Well, years later, one of the boys, Gene, returns to the school and visits all of the places where their friendship took really hard turns. Most notable was a large tree that sat beside a small stream on the school property. Well, during their time when they were in school, the two had climbed up to a high branch to jump into the creek below, but Gene had very impulsively sort of jostled the branch, causing Finney to fall and break his leg. And from there, this very serious drama about male rivalry and rites of passage unfold. I loved that book. So, my friend asked me, he said, who was it that caused Finney to fall from the tree and break his leg? Was it Gene or was it John Knowles, the author of the book? Now look, let that question sink in for a second because the value of the way that's phrased is because there really are two answers to that question, depending on whose perspective you're considering. I mean, if you're looking from the perspective of the author of the whole tale, well, there wouldn't even be a story if it weren't for the author. Of course, that's the ultimate reason why Finney falls from the tree. But if you're looking from the perspective of life within the story, then clearly Gene bears responsibility for his friend's injury. I actually find it kind of interesting that when we're studying a work of literary fiction, that's kind of us following the same pattern. First, we try to understand the storyline, how it's constructed, and then we try to assemble the author's intent for arranging it as such, right? Okay. What does it have to do with election and predestination? Well, for all of you that are kind of mentally reviewing your philosophy one-on-one -on -one notes in your head, I, I'm not suggesting that that illustration answers every question we might have about how God's sovereignty interacts with human responsibility. But I do think it helps us realize that we've got to be careful the way we talk when we say things like, well, I just can't believe in a God who would ever do that. Because God's existence is at least on another plane of reality that the relationship between the characters of a book and the author of a book is. Look, last week we saw Paul grappling with the idea of eternal election as a lens to understand why his people, the Jews, had rejected Jesus. And so chapter 9, as it were, was the author's point of view. Well, today we're going to look at the causes of their rejection from within the point of view of the story. In other words, Paul almost inadvertently, begins to lay out this pattern for understanding how it is people come to faith. 
Stated another way, Paul gives us, I think, some fascinating insights in Romans 10 about the work of evangelism and how best to understand it. So three ideas I want us to get this morning. First of all, when you see the mechanics of evangelism, the agent of evangelism, and then finally a short word about the effectiveness of evangelism. Let's take this first one, mechanics. Look, to be clear what we're talking about in chapter 10, Paul does the whole chapter to talk about how the gospel is or is not working among his fellow Jewish people. And foremost in his mind is this contrast between how the Jews think about being righteous versus how Christians have begun to think about it. Look at verse 5. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. This is a summary of what he's been saying all along. He's like, look, you people who have decided to live and place all of your confidence in life on how well you keep the law, How's that working for you? You're going to live by it. In other words, no one's kept the law. You all stand condemned. And so what Paul is saying is, as long as you live your life by the law, you're going to be plagued by a sense of distance between you and the good life. You're going to constantly feel like God is far off, like he's remote from you. In contrast, however, the righteousness that Jesus brings is by faith, which of course is exactly the opposite. Look at verses 6 and 7. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend to heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. What in the world is he talking about? What he's saying is that faith in Jesus is not something you have to go searching for. It's accessible to anybody. Which is why in verse 8, he pulls up this quote from Deuteronomy 30, 14 that goes like this. The word is near you. It's in your mouth and it's in your heart, which, as it turns out, is this perfect setup for the famous verse in verse 9, is it? Look, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Now, that's a verse that's gotten a lot of tra traction among Christians, hasn't it? And because it's, it's simplicity, right? Uh, and, and honestly, it deserves it for that. I think Paul is trying to say don't overcomplicate this. Don't overcomplicate what it means to make what we would call a credible profession of faith. <laughs> but that doesn't mean that we turn that verse into what people often peddle it as, which is like a magic spell, right? All you got to do, we explain, is feel something in your heart, whatever that is, and say something with your mouth, and whammo, you're off to heaven you go. It's not what Paul is getting at. Think about what Paul is saying more carefully. What Paul is saying is, is there is an unbreakable link between the activity of your heart and the activity of your mouth. Bear with me for a second. I'm not going to go all the way through the theology of the heart again because you've heard me say it over and over. But suffice to say that the heart in the Bible's understanding is the motivational center of your personality. Everything about you that comes out of you originates in your heart, whether it's your thinking, whether it's your feeling, whether it's your choosing, it all comes from the heart. What Paul is stressing, though, is if you're looking for a heart monitor, the best one that you have is your mouth. I think Paul actually got this idea straight from the mouth of Jesus when he's talking about the relationship of your insides versus your talking. Now, you remember back in Luke chapter uh, 
uh, 6, when that, in Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus says this, he says, The good person, out of the good treasure of his heart, produces good. And the evil person, out of his evil treasure, produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. See where he's going? In other words, whatever what that little last clause there says is whatever is the dominant attraction of your heart produces what comes out of your life. And we will most, most notably see that through your words. So we'll say. I don't know how many of you remember this. It made all the papers. But um, back in March, famous actor Will Smith exploded on comedian Chris Rock for a comment that he found insulting towards his wife. And I have zero interest in adjudicating that case from up here, uh, nor to actually really even try to explain it, except simply to make note of one interesting fact. Did you notice in the days after how many journalists were saying things like this? Is everything okay with Will Smith? <laughs> like, is he all right? Um, is he going through something right now? Now, why did we say that? I think it's because human beings instinctively know that this is exactly how we are created. That we are, what we are believing on our insides is central to the output that we produce on the outside. This is why I'm calling this key to understanding the mechanics of evangelism. Because the activity of your mouth and your heart are always active. Everybody has one, believing person and non-believing. They are always operational. And for that reason, it's one of the best places to begin when you're trying to discern where someone is with Christ, especially a lost neighbor, for instance. Because you don't have to start, I'm suggesting, by convincing them that matters of the heart are important. They know that. They're living that out presently. In evangelism, I think we begin with the question that Paul does, which is, so how's that working out for you? Because every other life system is going to be a righteousness that is fundamentally by the law instead of by faith like Jesus is offering. In other words, how, we're asking a lost person, have the allegiances of your heart either blessed you or cursed you? Because frankly, as a living outsider, your words suggest to me that this conflict is unresolved inside of you. And you're hurting yourself. You're actually hurting those around you with your gossip, with your slander, with your malice, with your anger, with your half-truths. So Paul centers his hopes for people's salvation on the condition of their hearts and, of course, the output of their mouths. And so should we. Those are the mechanics of evangelism. Secondly, though, I want us to consider, though, the agent of evangelism. This is where I think it gets kind of interesting. Because I do think that for most of us who talk about the idea of evangelism and we're going to church to hear about evangelism, we get a little tense about it and intimidated. We remember stories that we heard. We went to Christian rallies and such of people who had these dramatic testimonies and they talk about these amazing things that happened when God shifted their worldview. Sometimes we find ourselves thinking, I don't think I could ever make a presentation that would be that impactful on someone. What does that mean? Well, I want to try to lay this out and explain something about the last 50 to 60 years of American evangelicalism and the fact that there have been two dominant strains, I want to suggest, about how evangelism should best be carried out. Okay? Path number one is what I'm going to call confrontational evangelism. 
This particular approach has its origin in the mid-1900s in what we might call parachurch organizations. A parachurch organization is just an organization that goes alongside of the church, parallel to it, without actually being the living institution thereof. Uh, and of course, these parachurch organizations rose up largely due to the fact that most of the mainline denominations were walking away from the Bible and from the centrality of the gospel. So these liberalizing mainline denominations gave way to these parachurch organizations who, if we were all honest, carried a lot of orthodoxy through those difficult years. Those people who love uh, the Bible and theological writings of the Puritans, we owe a lot to parachurch ministries. And the deal is, these organizations were driven by precisely the same desire that Paul had, to see his fellow countrymen saved. He wanted to see people come to Christ. And so what they began to do was to develop these tools, these, these tracks, uh, strategies that they had for training people into how to share their faith and assist people onto faith for themselves. Look, in our denomination, the Presbyterian Church in America, PCA, uh, by far, the most popular of these tools was developed by the late D. James Kennedy, called Evangelism Explosion. E.E. for short was how it was referred to. E.E. taught trainees to evangelize with these very simple but, but probing questions, and, and some fantastic illustrations, by the way, to get someone thinking about the means by which they expe <clears throat> expected to go to heaven. There were two questions. One was like, hey, if you died tonight, do you know for certain that you would go to heaven? And if you stood before God in that moment and he asked you, why should I let you into heaven, what would you say? And of course, the great benefit of these tools were that they were based upon clear Bible teaching. They were wonderful summaries of the core of the faith in biblical way. It also had the advantage, I remember having one guy tell me, of, of helping people, how he said, close the deal with Jesus by making a decision at the end. <clears throat> However, I do think that as time is sort of pressed on, there are actually some weaknesses with this particular approach as well. The first is this. The EE curriculum in, in, in specifically is largely based on questions about someone's assurance of salvation, which is fine and good for a somewhat religiously motivated crowd, but as society has continued to secularize, these questions become more antiquated. And in the minds of this next generation, I can promise you, they come across as kind of quaint because they don't believe in heaven anyway. There's less and less cultural capital that people have to even entertain questions about whether there's a God at all. In other words, the higher that religious skepticism gets, the rise of the religious nuns, as we keep hearing them referred to, means that as they go along, probably embracing Christ is not going to happen in one sort of singular, earth-shattering, life-altering decision. Actually, quite the contrary. This generation, I would argue, only makes decisions through a thousand little mini-decisions over time that have to do with relevancy, that have to do with accuracy, that have to do with authenticity. It's fascinating. And so in my opinion, the sum of the effectiveness of these tools is actually waning in our country. And in one ways, I think that's most concerning is that oftentimes these presentations end up casting this idea of Christian conversion in purely intellectual terms. That is, you ascribe to this set of facts here through some kind of, I don't know, sinner's prayer or something, and you'll be a Christian. 
But I've always struggled with whether or not that really does justice to the Bible's emphasis on a whole life engagement with Christ. Okay, so confrontational evangelism. You may have some familiar with that. Sort of almost parallel to that group is a group of people that we would call lifestyle evangelists. Evangelists. These people, these adherents, believe that the best way to introduce people to faith is by a lifestyle that's distinct from the world. So therefore, we're going to be a group of people who raise our children differently. Uh, we're going to behave at work in a different way. Uh, we're not going to use the same uh, language or profanity, maybe, that the world uses. Uh, we're going to pray in meals at restaurants and do whatever we can to make our faith public. Then, when someone would think to notice their distinctiveness and ask a Christian about it, whammo, they had a great open opportunity to share their faith in Christ. Again, this approach has all kinds of benefits, not the least of which is encouraging Christians to be salt and light in the world, something which Jesus was pretty preoccupied by in the whole of the Sermon on the Mount. However, there also was a sense in which there was a weakness to this approach that sort of ended up making the unbelieving person take the first steps towards you in engagement. In other words, lifestyle evangelists always talked about building bridges over to those outside the faith, <laughs> but rarely was anybody actually crossing those bridges. That was the struggle. So I would argue that we face ourselves here with an evangelism conundrum. How do you evangelize the whole gospel, not just a trimmed down like Christianity light version of it, while at the same time giving unbelievers time and space and most importantly relationships that help them understand what it means to really be a disciple of Jesus. How do we do that? With that question in mind, look at verses 14 and 15. This is what Paul says. He says, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? Did you catch the progression? Believing requires hearing. Hearing requires proclamation. But to have proclamation requires someone to send you. What in the world could Paul be talking about there? Well, look, I need you to go back into the cobwebs of your mind to the beginning of this study back in January where we tried to stress that the book of Romans is not simply about this meticulous outline of what Christian salvation really is. It certainly is that. But it's also about the way in which Paul is conceiving of the new people of God. That what was known in the Jewish time is moving away to this brand new entity that God is forming called the church. The church is what Paul is back of all of what he's talking. So here's my premise. My premise is that the church has been given all the tools that are needed to effectively evangelize the world. And the church in many ways singularly is. Let me see if I can make my case on at least three points. Number one is this. In the church, if you think about it, you can actually bring people inside so they can have multiple exposures to the gospel on a variety of Christian topics. By the way, this is one of the reasons why we are very careful at Christ Press to just preach through books of the Bible so that what people are getting when they make a, a, a time to be a part of our fellowship is the whole counsel of God. The parts you love to preach and the parts you don't like to preach. It's the whole council, right? 
And what happens is, is you allow the text to speak for itself when you do that. And that way, when someone is responding, they're doing so on the most possible amount of truth that might apply to their lives. See the value? Secondly, I also think that in the church, you have the ability to keep those truths from being abstract ideas, which are sort of uh, um, detached from people's lives. In other words, when you actually have someone in the body that you're loving for, that you're caring for, that you're walking through life with, you have a chance to embody the truths you're asking them to embrace. Christianity is not less than the truths, of course not, but it's also the way in which we step into those. And someone can partake of that, by the way, without necessarily being an on-the-books member. Granted, to be a member of the church, you have to make a public profession of faith, of course, But that doesn't mean that someone's not welcome into our fellowship to enjoy the rich benefits of being in a body as a way of saying, let me tell you where this all leads to. It leads to Christ. Third appeal to you is I think that in the church, you also have the ability to create families where someone can grow up with the truth from the earliest of ages. That that was was what the baptism was about this morning, right? I remember when I was growing up, I was kind of embarrassed to tell people that there really wasn't a time that I remember and didn't hear about Jesus in my house. He was always around. Well, why was I embarrassed by that? (laughs) Shouldn't that be the goal of Christian parenting? Look, so when it comes down to it, this is my premise. I would submit to you that the most effective evangelism we can do, and this is crazy because I'm talking to a room of people that have, have, what, 300 different gifts, as many as there are faces in this room. And what that means is the best thing that I can do when I start to think about what my role in evangelism is, you ready for this? Bring him to church. (laughs) Simple as that. In other words, what we have here is an opportunity to enfold people while they're grappling with whether or not they really can make a profession of faith in Christ. I was listening to a podcast this week where someone was challenging us saying this, we always think that believing has to precede belonging. Little b belonging. I'm not talking about capital B belonging by being an on-the-books member. But there's a sense in which someone can say, no, I can feel like I belong to this body. They've accepted me in long before I was ready to buy into all their theology. You see the benefit? The church is uniquely able to do that. It stands alone in many ways. Now, look, I know what you're saying. You're saying to yourself, look, my neighbor is never coming to church. You don't know them. They are burned. Well, okay. Some of that may actually be our fault, by the way. Is this worship service intelligible to those outside the faith? I can promise you that Randall and Melvin and I, we work actually fairly hard on to make, hard to make sure that that's the case. But beyond that, maybe somebody may not come to a worship service, but I bet you they'd come to your connect group dinner. They might come to your small group that you've come to enjoy and love because it's very open and we can discuss things. They might even come to some special event like a, like a grill out on the back lawn. In other words, the church is vitally equipped to evangelize the word, really in a way in which no other entity can, which is one of the reasons why we as a church are enthusiastically behind the effort to plant churches, because we love evangelism. That's why we're planting churches all over the world, by the way. Paul has a vision for winning the world to Christ. And so what that means is when you come here and you live out your life, when you go speak to a person that you don't know, when you sort of care for them, when you find ways to extend yourself into their life, 
You're doing evangelism. That's what's going to push the gospel forward. And we don't need to despise its ability in the midst of it. All right, thirdly and lastly, and very quickly, I want to look at the effectiveness of evangelism. Because I do love how Paul puts this in verses 16 and 17. He says, look, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he's heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Ooh, I love that. Paul said, think about how easy that phrase is. Faith comes from hearing. Very interesting. You remember when Jesus said in Luke 8, 18, take care then how you hear? Remember when he said that, Luke 8, he was actually talking about a parable where he was outlining various different kinds of hearing and he pictured as if it was different soils, right? To see how the plants and the seed when the farmer threw on it grew up. So what Jesus was saying was, is don't engage in hard-hearted hearing. Don't engage in shallow hearing. Don't engage in distracted hearing, but rather seek to have fruitful hearing. In other words, you know whether you're hearing the word rightly because it bears fruit. It comes out as fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, all the things. Which brings me to the second thing about that simple phrase, faith comes from hearing, because I think it's profound. What it means is, is people come to faith simply from hearing the story of Jesus being told. That's it. And for evangelists, any would-be evangelist, the only, the only job that we have is to report to the world that thing that we found in Jesus that we found to be beautiful. Look, and guess what? It's probably going to be a little different from person to person. Have you ever stopped and done a little bit of internal look and been like, well, what did I find compelling about this Jesus? Like, like why am I here? <laughs> What motivated me here? It may have been overcoming some struggle in your past. It may have been someone sort of challenging you with your own self-destruction. Maybe it was Jesus offering you grace in the midst of a lifetime of guilt and shame. But somewhere in there is a little nugget of saying, look, I don't know about all your arguments. I don't know how to make a good presentation the way in which those pastors do at church. All I know is that I was blind and now I can see. Just those little reports, Paul is saying, don't overcomplicate it. Simply bear witness to the beauty of Jesus. Tell it. Jesus said in John 12, 32, if I am lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. This is not on you to make people Christians. Jesus does that. It reminds me of, this, of my new favorite quote. Uh, Jamie Smith, James K. Smith, has a little book called You Are What You Love. I, I warmly commend it to you. It's fantastic. But he's got a new favorite um, old quote of mine that he dug up by a French poet by the name of Antoine de, de Saint-Exupéry. Bear with me. That's what he says. He says, if you want to build a ship, don't drum up people to collect wood and don't assign them tasks and work, but rather teach them to long for the endless immensity of the sea. And you know what they'll do? They'll figure it out. Look again, the techniques are wonderful. I'm not disparaging any of those tools that have been de developed. I promise, if you heard me say that, you misheard me. But I'm saying at some point the tools can't be the point. The joy that the gospel has brought in you is the point. Because there is an endless immensity to the beauties of Jesus that as we simply gossip those 
That as we simply find entrees to be able to talk about those, we find a fruit of a life that people find beautiful. And when we uphold the beauties of Jesus, people are drawn to him. It's probably the way it happened for you. Yes, it was the truths. You're still fascinated by them. We still work through them week after week and verse by verse. But I'll bet you $5, it's that truth embodied in the life of a friend sitting next to you in this church that also brought those things home. If it was good enough for Paul, maybe it's good enough for us. Let's pray. And Lord Jesus, would you lead us up into that? Help us to see more clearly what it is that is altogether lovely about you. Search our hearts, Father. There may be some of us who didn't embrace you that way. We're here out of a sense of obligation. We pray that you might help us to uncover that joy. Father, even as we sing, the words of these writers come alongside us. They give us voice to what we know inside of our hearts, but we don't know how to say. And so we pray that even as we sing, we'll be proclaiming to the world exactly the joy that we found in you so that you will draw all men to yourself. Would you do that? For we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.